The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, dot, 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 end quote, is the stunning way in which Mark introduces this short but loaded gospel passage by giving us the story of an invasion, the one-person invasion force of Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah. Mark also seems in a terrible rush to get to where he feels the gospel really starts. He skips the birth of Jesus and begins by introducing us to the voice in the wilderness of John the Baptist, who heralds the advent at long last of the one strong enough to wrestle the world away from the grip of the secular powers of despair and disease and demons and death, which had rendered so many people helpless under the powers of Rome. In Roman society, the emperor was considered the divine son. So, for example, the birth of Caesar Augustus was announced as good news. But Mark says, no, no, no. What I tell you is the good news. And it's about Jesus, the son of God. Not some emperor who claims to be divine. The good news is about a divine figure, but not the emperor. Then in short order, we meet John the Baptist, who by his clothing and his lifestyle and his preaching of repentance in the wilderness is likened to Elijah, the first of the great Hebrew prophets, As you know, the wilderness is biblically significant as a place of desolation where one can easily become disoriented and feel lost and frightened that they will never find their way out again, where people hunger and have to survive on the likes of locust and wild honey. It's a place of community and flight and liberation, a refuge for the persecuted who await God's deliverance. John, the messenger sent to prepare the way, is telling us the way of Jesus is on the margins and in conflict with both the political and the religious powers of the day. In other words, be prepared. Jesus will not be as you expect him. He will be the promised Messiah, all right but one who totally confounds expectations. So Mark, in recasting John as Elijah, depicts him as representing the closure of the old, and Jesus is the radically new. John is the last of the Old Testament prophets. Jesus is far, far greater. Isn't it interesting that on the four Sundays, out of four Sundays of Advent, two of them concern John the Baptist? What is it about John that merits half of this season's lessons? Why did Jesus attach such an importance to John? And what do we have to learn from him, especially in Advent? Could it be the faith that was so alive in John? 
Whenever Jesus saw this radical openness to the Spirit of God, wherever he witnessed this vulnerability, he would stop what he was doing and hold it up for others to see. For example, the woman with the hemorrhage who broke through the crowd to touch the hem of Jesus' garment, or blind Bartimaeus throwing away his cloak and running to Jesus, or Zacchaeus shimmying down the sycamore tree on his way to hosting Jesus for dinner, or even those little children buzzing around Jesus and whom the disciples wanted to rebuke and send away. So just what, then, on the second Sunday of Advent, is this compelling faith presence in John? First, I think John's faith was a wholehearted obedience to God, a complete willingness to be directed by God and to remain untamed by the world. It was immediate and uncompromising. It ruffled and upset, and of course it drew strange looks. Sentimental, saccharine words were simply not in John. With his veins bulging, his hair flying, and his finger pointing, John just didn't talk the truth. He hurled it. Just as he believed he had received it from God, unrehearsed and unedited. He gave new birth to prophecy, and Jesus and others saw in him a presence of faith in which the inner and the outer were indivisible. He didn't just argue for repentance. He lived it. He was authentic, an authenticity without which Christmas will be lost someplace in the panic of lists, in a planning frenzy, or in pained family togetherness. Second, I think the faith of John was as transparent as it was prickly. He wasn't interested in personal ambition. He wanted the divine to be seen through him, not as him. He was a forerunner, not an ego seeker. Not only was he God's thunderbolt for a world half asleep in denial, he was a window into God's ultimate saving reality, the coming of Jesus the Christ. What better criterion is there for effective ministry when so many need so much than for us to pray for the gift of transparency, to be in our words, and in our behavior, transparently open to Christ, to be present to others in a way that Jesus can be seen and upheld, to point to Christ as the source of the acts of love. Remember something. Whoever, whenever, wherever we are, We are all modeling something. Third, John's faith, I think, reveals the sacred connection between spirituality and ethics. One of my favorite writers and mystics, Thomas Merton, 
once wrote concerning the early Christian monastics. He said, society was regarded as a shipwreck from which each individual had to swim for his life. These were people who believed that to let oneself drift along, passively accepting the tenets and values of what they knew as society, was simply a disaster. Every dimension of John's life worked against submission to social compulsions. His faith clearly detached him from one of the social compulsions evident in his day that has prevailed ever since, and that is the insistence on more and more and more. This detachment lay John's ethical power. He could do what God called him to do. The early Christians described John's primary task as bearing witness to Christ. So, with John as our model, can we do the same thing? Now, needless to say, we're not going to parade around in burlap attire or restrict our diet to grasshoppers. But what if, what if we also were to see our primary task as witnessing to Christ and obeying God by resisting evil and repenting? What if we also could be transparent by proclaiming by word and example the good news of God in Christ and seeking and serving Christ in all persons? And what if, if we also could connect our spirituality and ethics by striving for justice and peace and respecting the dignity of every human being? Sound familiar? That's our baptismal vow. And fortunately, we add, I will, with God's help. In our first lesson today, Isaiah writes, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Heart-lifting words that we hear from our God calling us, calling out to us in our world torn by evil, war, and debilitating poverty. In the tragedy of our world today, can there be any comfort for us? Maybe for those of us who live in a relatively safe country, for those of us who have more than we need, we can become comfortable, but that's different from finding comfort. And we might feel that being comfortable is enough perhaps until life takes a disastrous turn. Taking God's presence in our hearts for granted isn't the comfort Isaiah is talking about. It's an overwhelming truth that surpasses the feeling of having enough. It's the comfort of our God who lives deep in our lives, even when we don't think about it, even when we may not believe it, even if our fear blinds us to that presence. 
The last line of Isaiah's passage says, He shall feed his flock like a shepherd, and he shall gather the lambs in his arms. We have to trust that God is our comfort. As we now await the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we might pray that our hearts will be filled with the comfort of God and strengthened to bring that good news to all. We may have been baptized in a specific moment in time and place, but we nevertheless are being baptized every single day as we are challenged to live out our vocation. So the Advent message then is to wait with eager, breathless anticipation, but also to prepare for the invasion, to be stunned and knocked off our feet. Whatever we might have expected or have imagined, the coming of God in Jesus will be far, far greater and indescribably awesome. It's a road that may bring conflict, pain, struggle, disillusionment, and death. But it's also the way to life, to liberation, to restoration. You see, the one promised by the prophets is coming. This Jesus Messiah, Son of God.